The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to another new episode of You Need Therapy. My name is Kat, and I am the host, and I'm so glad you're here as always. If you're new, I'm also especially really excited and happy and glad that you're here. Before we get started and talk about the episode today, I always like to start off by saying that, yes, I'm a therapist, and yes, this podcast is called You Need Therapy, and this is not therapy or a substitute. You just simply cannot do therapy over a podcast. So, This might lead you to getting some help in regards to something that you might uncover by listening to this, but it is not therapy in itself. So let's talk about today's episode. I have a friend of mine on to talk about something that might seem to be a little bit like weird or odd as a topic for this podcast, but actually it really isn't. And we tell you why that is in our conversation. So I'll save that so you don't have to hear it twice. But my guest's name is Nathan Green. And along with being one of my friends, he is a certified financial planner and he's the principal of Karen Financial Group, which is his company. He has over 10 years of experience in this industry and working in financial planning and all of that stuff. And one of the things I really, really value about him and appreciate about him is that his work and what he does and how he runs his business is kind of guided by the idea that he's helping people meet their own goals, whatever those goals are, and not the goals that he thinks are best for a generalized population. And I think that's really cool. We actually talk about that in our conversation. So you'll hear more about why and and how that works. So Nathan graduated from Auburn University and now actually teaches at a couple universities along with owning his own company, which I think is so cool. And I've told him that so many times. I sometimes like daydream about teaching a course at a university, maybe even the one that I graduated from one day. I don't know. I don't have the time to do it now, but I love teaching, obviously. It's part of the reason we have this podcast. So he does that, which I think is awesome. And really, I just like respect the heck out of him, not just when it comes to career and his knowledge about money and finances. He's just like a really good human. 
and one that I have really come to value having in my life. So along with the knowledge that he brings to us, he's also just bringing like a good, kind, caring energy that's like nice to be around, you know? So if you want to connect with Nathan yourself after hearing him talk, you can find him by heading to his website, which is www.karenfg.com. And I will put all the links that you need to find him in the show notes that you can just click on. He also talks about how you can follow him on Twitter at the end of this, even though I don't think his account is very active, but you know, give him a follow and uh, maybe he'll start posting on there. So I just want to say, Thank you, Nathan, for being yourself in all of the ways. And thank you for coming and having this conversation. I also want to just put in this quick disclaimer on Nathan's behalf before I introduce our conversation. And all investment advisory services are offered by the Karen Financial Group, a state registered investment advisor. All information discussed today is general in nature and does not represent a recommendation or investment advice. So, Disclaimer from Nathan. My disclaimer is this is not therapy. And now that we have that out of the way, I would like to introduce my conversation with my good friend Nathan. Okay, guys, welcome back. I have, I always say this, I need to think of something better to say. Maybe you can help me. I always want to say I have a, another exciting. Now presenting. No. <laughs> I always want to say like, I have another exciting episode, but then every week I say the same thing. So I think it waters it down, but I have an exciting episode with an exciting guest because I have my friend Nathan Green here. Hello. Hello. And we are going to talk about something that might seem a little bit off or like, wait a second. I thought this was a mental health podcast. Just a little bit. What is it? Off the grid? Does that fit? Outside the box. Outside the box. There we go. We're going to talk about money. And I wanted to do this because one, I'm just interested in it. And because this is my podcast, sometimes I just get to do things that I'm interested in. And also because I think that there is an essence of psychology and just mental health and awareness around money. Because historically, it is something that we just don't speak about. So you introduced this as an exciting episode, and then you went on to disprove your claim oh, immediately I did? Did thereafter. I say that? Hi, this is going to be an episode about money. Is that not exciting? I don't think many people get excited about money unless it's like, "Hi, here's a big check." We're gonna, <laughs> yeah, but you might learn something, and then maybe you'll make a bunch of money. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah no, that's that's right. Those yeah. are the dots that everybody you know, now just perked up and yeah, said, "Yep, because I'm in." Here's the thing: we're going to talk about some things that I bet a lot of you guys have asked or wondered, but you actually haven't like asked or wondered out loud. So I think that's exciting. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. I'm okay. gonna I'm gonna ask the questions that maybe somebody else is afraid to ask, and you're gonna be like, "Thank God she asked that, and thank God I kept listening." I love it. So exciting. I'm here for that. Okay, so I want to start talking about like why we don't talk about money. And I have my own feelings, and I want you to share your feelings if you have them, mm-hmm. and if they are different, because I think this is the issue that we just don't speak about it. So we don't know about it, and we don't know about something, then we don't speak about it more. I think for me, it stems from like. The idea that talking about money is like rude or impolite. I think impolite is the better word. Like Mm. speaking about money Mm -hmm. and and talking about having money or not having money or how much something cost or Mm -hmm. or any of that just was talked about or put in this box of like, oh, don't do that. That's impolite. Yeah. Maybe it's just talking about how much you make. Then we put the whole category of money into that box. And so I don't ask questions about anything because mm-hmm. I just I just put everything together. And I will say, I also think, and I might be getting ahead of myself, but I think that if we take this even a step farther, I'm a female. And I think that 
culturally, um, women are supposed to be polite. Like we're taught to be polite. We also, I think we double don't talk about it. And then I think when we get older, when we're younger, we can get that. It's not that big of a deal. We get older. I remember learning about like, okay, when you get your first job and they gave us this talk about like negotiation mm-hmm. and I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's real. I'm not negotiating yeah. my salary. Uh-huh. Are you kidding me? And it's like, yeah, you, we can, there's a, probably a couple camps we can sit out in and of why that's tough. And I think part of it is that I really do think this, I think part of it is that if I'm supposed to be, if I'm taught to be polite and talking about money is impolite and I'm trying to ask for more money, one, it's rude to talk about money and two, I should just be grateful for what they offer me. And that can lead us down a trail of like, Oof. what do you think you're worth and say, all that. You're going to open up a can of yeah. self-worth conversation yeah. and I am poorly prepared for this. Well, So, so <laughs> we're not going to go down there, but I just had to say that because I do think that's true because I can remember my experience of getting my first job and having like a panic attack when I was like, oh, I have to ask for more money. And it's like, people would say, what's the worst that's going to happen? They're oh, gonna say please no. don't say no. Please don't. No, but that would be devastating though. It would be would dev- it not be? But it would be devastating, but... Also, I think the worst that could be happen is somebody thinking that I, sh- I shouldn't have asked that. Sure. I think that for me is more of like, why would you ask that? Yeah. Like you're dumb for asking that or you, there's a lot of things. Sure. I, get, I think I'm getting ahead of myself. I, well. <laughs> but I make a good point, right? I don't right? necessarily want to say that you're getting ahead of yourself, but I'm curious to see where you're going to end. Oh, I don't know. That there's, oh, are you done? I think was that I could it? just go in circles around that whole <laughs> yeah. idea. But I just wanted to say that because it, it, that is a repercussion of the idea that we're not talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think when it comes to money, you've got a number of different ways that it plays out. You've got uh, sort of informal and social settings. You've got money in a professional setting. You've got money in your own self-worth. You've got money internally in your own household. That is, you know, your own net worth. Uh, and I think that you play the conversation out about money in those different settings and you end up with yeah, different um, psychoses, if you will. Yeah. Well, I, you're right. And so we're not going to pick one of those. We're going to talk about it overarching. But I do think you have a point of like, it feels different to talk about it in different settings. But my experience is like, it's uh, we don't talk about it at all. I think that's very true all across the board. And I think that there's a general sense of avoidance to most things, finances in in society today, or at least United States society today. And that plays itself out in a lot of different ways. We can recognize the symptoms of it socially, and we can recognize the symptoms of it professionally. Uh, and we may say, okay, we need to focus on and address and fix the symptoms. But listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to posit that if we can fix the more core issue, then and all the symptoms sort of resolve itself in the long term. Now, that's not necessarily what we're What's here to talk the core about today. Issue? In my opinion, it's education. Oh, I mean, yeah. I've complained to you a couple yeah. of times that, listen, high school students graduate today knowing what a mitochondria does, yeah. but have no idea what taxes are. And uh, th- there's a huge gap yeah. here, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, one of these is the powerhouse of the cell, and the other of these is. Maybe the thing that you're going to go to prison over? No, you're actually not, Kat. But. I do think I'm going to get arrested one day. No, for she's doing not. doing my taxes wrong. I, I'm, I don't do them wrong, but it's just like a huge fear I have. It's irrational and I'm working through it. Yeah, I think that you're right. That I, I agree. Because along with the idea that like it's impolite, well, it just isn't talked about. I think that's the other thing is if it's if it's something that's just not talked about, then there is this, this like fear that kind of like builds up around it. Yeah. 
it's also the concept of impolite is interesting to me because I think socially it is impolite to talk about money, or at least it's perceived as such in a lot of settings. And that's often because when people start talking about money, there's a sense of showmanship or posturing about it. Like whether it's intended or just perceived, if ever you talk about, mm, I bought this bottle of wine and it was this, or mm, I bought this car and it was that, or mm, I made this on my paycheck, there's a sense of like, oh, look at me, I'm, I'm this big old person who is successful and accomplished. Where realistically, that is just one very, very, very small component of one's actual financial wealth however you want to define it but i have to stop you yeah okay do you want to know something interesting usually okay (laughs) right now do you (laughs) yeah okay yeah so (laughs) it's funny that you say that because a couple months ago i did this episode on fear of failure Mm. which during that episode i found out that it's very hard to say fear of failure so i have to say a lot fear of failure okay you don't have trouble saying it i had some trouble Anyway, in that conversation, I wanted to figure out, okay, if I'm afraid of failure, what is success? So how do I know if I failed or not? So I was doing some research and I found this article and I forget where this research came from, but it came from somewhere and not me. Okay. And they did a survey and asked people what they thought success was Mm. and what they thought other people think it is. Mm. And 90% of people said they think other people think success is measured by finances, like monetary. That makes sense. Jobs like that. Guess how many people actually... I'm sure very few, if any. 10%. Yeah. So I just thought that was wild because we're all out here doing this dance to prove success in a form that nobody actually... Well, 10% of people, they don't count right now. Right. Nobody actually thinks that. That's right. And so then we're all just manufacturing this like weird success. And if we could strip that down, then I think we could say like, oh, I got this bottle of wine. It was $100. And people wouldn't be like, Whoop-de-doo, people would just people people would just be like, oh, that's crazy. Is it is it must be good? Was it worth it? Period. And it wouldn't be this like, oh, they're trying to be blah blah blah. Or I could say like, I you know save up a bunch of money and I was able to buy this like dream car. Do you want to come see it? And it wouldn't be this like, I'm trying to show this off to you. It's like I'm trying to share with you something exciting. But because we think that people think success is that way, then we use it as a way sometimes to show our success. And it doesn't have to be that way. No, certainly doesn't. And the solution is, is to start just talking about money. I think there's yeah. a lot of truth to that. Yeah. So I cut you off and I don't know where you were going. Oh, I definitely don't either. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not going to go back Absolutely lost track. We're not going to go back there. Yep. Okay. So I think that just kind of as a whole rounds out why I think it's kind of hard because there's no education because it's impolite and because we just haven't done it. And if we don't do things, then they become scary. Scary things are scary and we don't want to do them. Yeah. And I think that there's another phenomena that I have a hard time capturing in words, but I see evidence of it a lot. And this is me speaking anecdotally, but there's this phenomena where the best way I know how to translate it, if you don't know where you're going, you really struggle with where you are and knowing whether you're in the right place. That's beautiful. You can quote me on your wall whenever you need. No, I think that is true. Yeah, and when that plays itself out in finances, 
when we don't think about the way finances play out for ourselves, we don't think about who we want to be when we grow up. And that applies if you're 20 or if you're 80. Um, but if you don't really have a clear grasp of that and you don't know how to directly translate that into what that means for your money, then if you think about where your money is today, then you just struggle to, to grasp if it's in the right place, if you're doing the right thing, because you don't have a clear understanding of where it needs to be when you grow up and what you need yeah. to be doing to get you there. But nobody's told me either. That's right. And nobody's standing or rather without that clear vision of where you need to take yourself and how your money is going to get you there. You have no confidence on the ground that you're standing on now financially. Yeah. And so whenever you think about finances, there's a degree of high degree of lack of confidence uh, that comes shame. with that. I, well, that, sure. I would say there's shame. And before we get into some of the questions that I'm going to ask, I would like to talk about that because I do and have felt personally, and I do not think I'm alone in this, a lot of shame for not knowing some of this stuff and not knowing what to do. And so when I feel shame, and when a lot of us feel shame, one thing we do is we try to avoid it by avoiding it, which doesn't help because then it is just there and then it causes bigger issues. And there's nothing shameful about not knowing about something that nobody taught you. And there's nothing shameful about not knowing about something that people told you not to talk about. But we carry that. And that I think is one of the reasons that I have recently asked my dad for the name of one of his financial advisor people like four or five times and he's given it to me and I've never reached out to him because I feel there's a sense of like, it's too late for me. I should have done this when I was 22. I tried to do it when I was 22. That's a story for a different podcast. And, and that story ended in shame. And so I avoided it. And so then I get into my thirties and I'm like, Oh shit, one day I'm going to retire and I work for myself what do I just keep a bunch of money in a bank account? Don't do that. Wait, no, I'm sorry. I cannot. I'm sorry. I, I cannot give advice in this setting. That That's just came out because you're like, oh God. But like, yeah. And it's all because there's a sense of like, I'm dumb and I'm going to go to this person's office and they're going to be like, why are you just now getting here? Or you're too far gone. Or they're going to say something like, I can't believe you did this. Or they're going to say we're in trouble. Like we have a lot of work to do. And like, I don't want to be in trouble. And I also have this irrational fear of going to jail yeah, <laughs> for something yeah, that yeah. I probably didn't do. <laughs> um, so all that to say, I want to invite anybody who's listening to this into the idea that like shame does not belong in a place where this topic is living because you didn't do anything to not know this stuff that wasn't essentially like pushed upon you. That's very real. And I think you've unfortunately not had a incredibly unique experience with financial planners in that I mean I hear you talk about therapists this way and that financial planners are humans too yeah. and some of them are more empathetic than others and some of them are trained a little bit differently I mean interestingly financial planners don't have the the degree of uniform training that even you as a therapist would. And so if I'm sitting across the table from a therapist, I more or less know the training you've been through. I know, more or less know the education you've been through, the licensing that you've been through. That's not the case for financial advisors. You don't have like a licensing board? You don't have to be like have to do it? We have many licenses that yeah. allow us to do numerous different things. And not everybody has the same licenses, nor is there one uniform way to get 
any of those licenses. So I have the uh, CFP designation that stands for Certified Financial Planner. That's colloquially held as sort of the, the chief diagnostic certification in the finance industry. It's sort of the highest in one realm of the financial planning world. There are other licenses. I actually have other licenses, a Series 7, a Series 66, all these things that in previous careers actually allowed me to do certain things. Frankly, they actually allowed me to sell and broker uh, different investments to you. But in and of themselves, that doesn't inherently train me to be empathetic and right. train me to understand the challenges that you're yeah. going through. And so, like I say, somebody who is a financial planner is not the same as another person who is a financial planner. Is that frustrating for you? It's though? very frustrating for me. Yeah. It's very, very, very frustrating for me. And I hate to say this on recording, but I think that the industry broadly has, has done a pretty bad job of that in reference to the consumers and that they've put a lot of burden on the consumer to figure it out yourself. And oh, in the process, while you're figuring it out yourself, like be aware that you might mess it up because somebody gives you bad advice or because yeah. somebody's not empathetic and doesn't really understand yeah. where you are, what you're going through, or doesn't really understand who you want to be when you grow up and says you need to go a different direction. And it could be because of malice. I don't think there's that many bad actors, but I do think that there's a lot of opportunity for just misunderstanding and those misunderstandings to translate into advice that you then act on that wasn't actually in line with what you wanted to get out of your finances. Yes. That are you saying to... What yes, am I, huh? I think... I'm sorry, I'm, po <laughs> I'm pointing at him. I think that is a good point. I think you said this the other day when we were talking because as you were saying that, I was like, oh, there's a good amount of not great therapists too. And I even got an email today from somebody who shared an experience of a, something that therapist said to them. And I, in my head, I was like, how in the hell would anybody ever uh -huh. think that that's a good idea to say <laughs> i was just like yeah. what mm -hmm. i say that because we can get very discouraged mm -hmm. and people go to therapy and they hear something like that and they're like i'm not going back to therapy those people so are true. mean yeah. they're judgmental they're sure. this they're that yeah. and i think that's the, it can be in any any industry that we can't judge one person we can't just the whole right. thing on one person but i think what you just said about like that might not be that person's goal and as a therapist, I have to check myself all of the time because I'm a human who thinks certain things about what is right, right. for my life. Right. And That's I not think, inherently what's right for no, your patients. I don't even know how to say this, but I don't think that the vast majority of people sit in the seat of what's right for me is not right for everybody. They mm -hmm. sit in the seat of what's right for me is the best and everybody should want the best. And yeah. so everybody should want what I want. And I've, I've only learned how to take on this idea mm -hmm. through experiencing like, oh my gosh, there's so many different kinds of humans who have different goals and different beliefs work for them. And so I have to be very aware of that because if somebody comes in here and I'm like trying to help them, but I'm help trying to help them believe what I believe and get what I want out of life, they might not want that and then they're gonna be either lost or pissed off or hurt or confused or whatever. Right. And I think that can be the same with money is Absolutely. not everybody has to have the same goals with their money. Hey guys, Kat here and I have something very important to talk to you guys about. Now, I know you're used to hearing me talk about therapy and how important it can be for you and how transformative it can be for you in your life. But if you're somebody who's tried therapy and it just hasn't done the trick or you just need a little extra boost, 
I think I found the next best thing. And the next best thing might just be Cozy Earth and their bamboo sheets and their bamboo pajamas. It feels like you are stepping into a buttery, cozy, warm, and cool hug all at the same time. And that's just their pajamas. Don't even get me started on their sheets. As soon as I touched them, I said, okay, we're changing the sheets right now. And the bonus is they come in this really cute travel tote so you can take your sheets with you wherever you go. Elevate your summer getaway with Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding and loungewear, ensuring the comfort of home wherever you roam. We're all in luck because you can discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code UNEED at checkout to get 35% off. Yes, 35% off. And let them know that we sent you Unique Therapy after you check out. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle. And I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. So when we were talking the other night, I asked a question about like paying off loans. And I was like, I just want to pay my loans off. And you were like, why? What loans are we talking about and why? And I was like, well, because I need to be debt free. Of course. It's a good thing. That's what everybody, everybody should be debt free. That's what like, right. There's some some validity in that. But we kept talking and you asked me some follow-up questions. I'm not going to share the details of it, but the point I'm trying to make is it might not lead me to my goals to try to be debt free first. And I think that that is even something that's like debt is bad and you shouldn't have it and get rid of it as soon as you can and spend all your money to not have it. But like that might not align with what I want out of life and that's okay. Yeah. That's, that's, that is okay. 
And I'm not saying like go like get a bunch of credit card debt, but like you gotta you gotta think about the voices that are preaching that message the loudest are the ones that are preaching to the broadest portion of the population. We're talking millions of people at a time. And when you're talking to millions of people at a time, you got to think about how can I give advice that is going to be messed up less frequently than any other advice. And if I tell people, don't pay off your debt, go make the life that you want, people mess that up. Yeah. And people end up in too much debt and don't ever get their stuff together. And then you're a bad guy. That's right. Absolutely. But if you say the opposite, pay off your debt, worry about getting your balance sheet clean and free and clear of all that debt, then you know, what, are, what are we talking about messing up here? Really what we're talking about here is, asterisk, we're talking about an economics term here, but opportunity cost. It's, yeah. okay, was that the best place for your dollar? Maybe, maybe not, but that's not a big mistake if you do go and pay off all your debt. And if you are that group of people who are talking to millions of people at a time behind a microphone or writing yeah. books or whatever, then that's a, that's a pretty safe way to give black and mm. white advice. Yeah, and if I'm afraid to talk about money, I'm going to read a book or right. listen to a podcast sure. or <laughs> no, um, <laughs> or follow something big like that so I don't have to have that personal experience. The yep. same thing with therapy. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is a very mental health focused uh, episode <laughs> because I think that's why I get so, and a lot of the listeners are probably like, okay, Kat, we get it. It annoys you because I talk about it all the time, but I get so frustrated with uh, like TikTok and Instagram mental health coaches, therapists, mm-hmm. people on there yep. because they're generalizing a lot of things and then people are grabbing onto it. And I'm like, but that doesn't have to apply to you that way. Right. And so it's dangerous. Right. Could be right. And there's could be right. Often could time, be right. Oftentimes a lot of truth in what's being said, but is it the is best it, for you? Correct. So what I would like to do since I have you here mm. is just ask you some questions and Give us as much of an answer that you can. And sometimes the answer might be, I don't know. You sounds like you might need a more tailored answer to you. Yeah. But I joked about this when I, I put a question box on Instagram and said, like, what are the, some questions that you're afraid to ask about money? And the most common one was, uh, it just makes me laugh because it's the one that I think I asked you first. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. what is a 401k? Why don't I know what it is? Should I know what it is? Should I have one? And where do I get one? Uh-huh. So can we start with that? I think that's a perfectly fine place to start. A 401k is what we'll refer to as an employer-sponsored retirement savings plan. Those are all words, and you know what each of those words mean, but when you actually play it out into an investment account, you think, what in the world does all those words mean? Mm -hmm. Um, We'll break it down. Employer-sponsored means that it can only be offered by your employer. So you can't go to your bank and say, hi, can I get a 401k today, please? You can't open one up at the bank. Nope, you can't, unless you have your own job. So I I, can. Rather, not your own job, but your own company. Right, you can open it up in the name of the company. And the company opens one up and then allows different participants within the plan and I can participate in the plan that's right okay that's right or if you are employed by HCA a large hospital in Nashville then well I guess all across the country then HCA has a 401k and allows any and all of their full-time employees to participate and defer part of their salary into that 401k plan so again that's the employer sponsored part so why would I want to defer my money into that? Mm-hmm. So that brings us to the retirement savings vehicle. Well, actually, I should give another asterisk. It's an employer-sponsored 
tax-deferred retirement savings vehicle. Let me come back to the tax-deferred part for a second and talk about the retirement savings. Retirement savings means that once you put the dollar into the account, it is not meant to be spent until you are retired, as defined by an age, meaning 59 and a half. So put a dollar into your 401k, IRS is saying, please don't touch this until you're 59 and a half. Or if you do, we're going to tax you and we're going to penalize you. Now, it's not the end of the world to be taxed. Nobody ever went broke paying taxes. I should check with my compliance officer whether I can say that. So, Jason, get on to me if I, if I can't actually say that. But And the penalty is 10%. So, again, this is not you know, a prisonable offense if you mess that up. However, the whole point of the 401k is set it aside for retirement. And because that's a good idea or at least the IRS thinks it's a good idea, because that helps them, by the way. If you save for your own retirement, that oh, means yeah. that you are less of a you know burden on the state when you're later in age. You're putting less burden on the Social Security Administration system. And as you're self-insuring your own retirement, then they have to rely less on taxes and social infrastructure to actually support you in retirement. So they think, oh, please and thank you. Will you please save for your own retirement? They want us to do that. That's right. And in exchange for that, to kind of back their word up, they'll allow us some tax breaks on that. So that brings me to the last comment being that it is a tax-deferred account. Now, technically, the, the 401k can be set up as one of two different types of 401ks. It can either be a traditional 401k or it can be a Roth 401k. We'll get back to the Roth in a second, but Roth is just, we just need to treat that as an adjective to describe the type of 401k. And it changes, the term Roth means that uh, the taxation changes, flip-flops, where the taxes are going to be paid. So the tax-deferred account means that when you put the dollar into the 401k, you don't have to pay taxes on that dollar. But when you sit the money in the account and it grows, it still grows with no tax burden until you get to retirement and you remove dollars from the account. Then when you remove the dollars, all those dollars would be taxable to you as income uh, whenever you do remove them. You're looking at me confused. So let me give you a very simple case study. If I've got 100 bucks in a week, and I decide to defer 10 of those dollars to my 401k. That means I get to turn to the IRS and say, hey guys, I only made $90 this week. That's good because taxes, owed, this is very simple but powerful, taxes owed on $90 is less than taxes owed on $100, okay? That's good because all of a sudden your cash flow was much less burdened by putting those $10 into the 401k because you got that tax deduction for it. So that extra cash flow that you get from the tax deduction, you could use to you know, pay your student loans off or put in more money into your 401k or whatever you needed to do. But upfront, you get a little bonus from that tax deduction. And that shows itself in the form of your tax withholdings. If you look at your paycheck, you see taxes being withheld from your paycheck. It'll be it, less. It will be less. So you may put a dollar into your 401k and your tax withholdings might go down by 20 cents. I might be getting ahead of myself. I'm pretty sure you can invest money that's in your 401k. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can. Absolutely. So if you make money inside the 401k, mm -hmm. do you have to pay taxes on the money that is made inside of it? You that don't? That is a perfect transition into the next phase of my case study. Okay. So day one, you make a hundred bucks, you put 10 into the 401k, you don't pay taxes on those 10, you pay taxes on the remaining 90. So we save some money. That's great. Meanwhile, the $10 sits in your 401k and 
all 401ks are given a list of mutual funds that they can invest in. There's usually a pretty broad range of them, but they're fairly systematized. There's, they're fairly repeatable and, and predictable uh, what kind of funds would be in there. Most of the time these days, there's even such thing as what they call a target retirement date fund. That's kind of a put the money in there and it does it for you, assuming that you're going to retire by whatever date. We don't have to get too complicated about that. What is a mutual fund? Oh. Is that too big of a How question? Much? No, it's not at all. Well, I think investing, I, I think I'm going to like buy stock in Target or something. Yeah, certainly. That's so, not a mutual fund. Okay, let's bookmark where we just left with our money in the case study where the money is in the 401k and it's growing. And as it grows, it grows totally tax-free. Um, let's bookmark this point and talk about the, the mutual funds and the stocks and the bonds. We'll come right back to it. But I want to finish my point okay. uh, about the case study that... As the $10 is in the 401k growing, you pay no taxes on its growth. But then when you get to retirement, if you remove $100 in a week from that account, you have to turn to the IRS and say, I made $100. So however much you withdraw is going to define whatever your tax bill is going to be. Does that conceptually make some sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So it is a tax deferred retirement savings vehicle. You pay the taxes when you pull it out. That's right. We're just deferring okay. the tax. The people who are in charge of the Financial Naming Institute of America, it's not a real thing for the record, mm -hmm. but they are some of the least creative people in the yeah. world. They're like, what what happens to the taxes in this thing? Do they get deferred? Cool. I guess this is a tax deferred thing. And that's, that was nice, though. <laughs> I like that. That if, makes it easy. If you actually think through some of the way these things are named and break it down, there's some intentionality behind it. Unfortunately, the intentionality, the overtness of it, overt simplicity in a lot of times actually makes it convoluted and a little bit complicated, but that's neither here nor there. You want to talk about mutual funds? In order to understand what a mutual fund is, you probably need to have a functional understanding of what a stock is as well as what a bond is, but we're going to use those terms to get to the point of what is a mutual fund. So a stock, you may have heard that uh, referenced to as equity before a stock is literally just ownership in a certain company little small proportional ownership in a company um, and it's really no more complicated than that it's akin to you starting your own company like you do mm -hmm. and being able to profit from that company the exact same way uh, as if you own stock in the company so i mean think about it with me if you own a company again you do then you can make money from your company one of two different ways Way one is by, oversimplified here, generating revenue. It's not actually that you're making money just by generating revenue, but uh, as owner in a company, this is separate from an employee of the company. So maybe a good uh, case study would be like, I come from a family where I'm the runt that is not a pharmacist. So I'm going to give the equation to pharmacists. If I own a pharmacy, I employ myself as pharmacist in the pharmacy, then I'm paying myself a salary. I, as owner in the pharmacy, can also make money totally separate from that if the company makes more money than I budgeted for. In other words, if we run a profit, mm -hmm. right? If we run a profit, I, as owner, have a choice. Say I've made a budget for a million dollars one year, and it turns out I made $1.2 million. So I've got $200,000 to do something with. I can either take that money and reinvest it within the company, which could be good, could allow me to buy a pharmacist or some technology or facelift the building or whatever it is that may actually generate more money in the future. Or I could pay myself extra. If I pay myself extra 
as a owner that comes out to me in the form of a what we call a dividend. That's a IRS accounting term for non-salary owner income. So when you own a pharmacy and have profit, you can pay yourself a dividend. It's just extra money that comes to you. Pretty cool. CVS, a publicly traded stock that is a pharmacy, is making the exact same decisions every single year. But they're not making it with a hundred, with a million and one point two million. They're making it with a billion and one point two billion. And when they've got that, actually, don't know the numbers. We could publicly yeah. available numbers. We could get them. But the point is, if they've got two hundred million dollars, they're doing it at a much larger scale. And the people who are making the decision of whether to reinvest that money or pay it out as a dividend is the board of directors. And everybody on that board of directors owns a lot of shares in CVS. And so when they decide, ah, I'm going to pay out a dollar per share, if they own a million shares, they get a million dollars. If you own a hundred shares, you get a hundred dollars. Just like that. Make sense? Say that last part again. If they pay out one dollar per share in the form of a dividend, then it comes out proportionally. So if the person sitting on the board of directors owns a million shares of CVS, then that dividend at a dollar per share means they get a $1 million check. But if you own 100 shares, since you're getting a dividend of $1 per share, then you get a check for $100. That is what stocks are? So this is an example of if you own stocks, how you can make money. Yes, this is this is I'm still making my point about stocks. So yes. when you say board of directors, you mean people that own stock? No, 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 no. I'm saying they're the decision makers who decide whether or not to pay out a dividend or not. And a dividend is what gives you money when you have stock. That's right. That's right. When it comes to a stock, if you own stock, that is, let's oversimplify and say if the stock is profitable, the company is profitable, then the company might pay you a dividend. Got it. All right. So then what's a stock have to do with a mutual fund? Well, we're still building our point. Oh, <laughs> That's only one way that you can make money with a stock. The other way is that, again, going back to our pharmacy as a example, if you own a pharmacy, you can make money from that pharmacy when you decide to sell the pharmacy. Now, that is a long and laborious and customized process. You got to find a buyer and hire an attorney and hire a CPA to kind of value the business and negotiate over what you're going to sell it for. And then you're going to have to hire me to figure out how money is going to change hands. And it's just very involved and engaged and a lot to it because there is no defined market for pharmacies. You have to go through a very customized process. But there is, however, a defined market for stocks. It's called the stock market. And because of that, there is a defined procedural way to value stocks and how they are traded every single moment. And it's all systematized. Because of that, if you own CVS, there are millions of shares of CVS that are traded every single day. And as a result of that, you get to see if you own 100 shares in CVS to the second what somebody else just paid for the same 100 shares that you actually own. And because this is not antique furniture that we're talking about, where you might see on Antique Roadshow, hey, this person's got that same chest of drawers that I've got in my living room, and they just paid a million dollars for it. Well, it may not be worth a million dollars, the one that you own, because you might have a scratch. But your CVS stock is worth the exact same as what somebody else just paid there for that other lot of 100 shares of CVS stock, because it's all literally the exact same. It's all systematized. Anyways, when you own stock, you own company. And when you own a company, you can share in its profits and you can make money by selling it on the market. More or less makes sense? Mm -hmm. Cool. 
I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step, and you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of times you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. The other thing to be aware of is what's called a bond. Most people don't know much about bonds, or rather, Savings let me say that a different bond. way. Yeah, so Heard that's that. there you go. Maybe I shouldn't say most people don't know. I don't know I what that means, but I know what that is. More Thank people you. are familiar with stocks than are with bonds. However, the bond market is huge, and um, the stock market pales in comparison. But really, what a bond is is an instrument of debt. Uh, and what that means is that, you know, let's make the analogy to when you bought your house, you looked at the house and you said, hmm, I'd like this house, but I don't have the money. So I'm going to go to a bank and you're going to say, hey, bank, uh, I'd like to buy this house, but I don't have the money and I need you to give it to me. And the bank looks you up and down and they say, mm, OK, we agree. We're going to give you the money, but we need a couple of things from you. We need you to promise, number one, that you're going to pay us back. And we need you to promise, number two, that you're going to pay us back uh, in a set amount of time. And then number three, we need you to promise that you're going to pay us back in a set amount of time with interest on top. 
Those are the three components that make up debt. And when you talk about CVS, again, sorry if anybody from CVS is listening here, this is just the thing that I've latched onto. <laughs> this is a hypothetical example, I should say ABC stock uh, instead. But when we talk about ABC stock, who's needing to open up a whole bunch of new pharmacies or convenience stores, they're not going to the bank and asking for $300,000 like you or I did. They're going to the bank and asking for $300 million. And since no bank has $300 million just laying around in the floor, what the bank does is break that $300 million loan up into tiny little pieces and sell those pieces to people like you and me and anybody who wants to buy them. And when they sell them to you and you buy that bond for, let's say, $1,000, what you're doing is giving... ABC Corporation, $1,000 in exchange for their promise to pay you back plus interest in a set amount of time. Where do you get a bond? <laughs> Where can I buy one? <laughs> uh, any number of places. You mentioned savings bonds. You can actually buy bonds from uh, the United States government on, I think it's treasurydirect.gov. I don't remember. And I'm basically is, then but... giving the government money. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to pay me back plus more interest. money. Yep, in a set amount of time. Wow. That's right. So you can do that directly through the treasury. You can do that through any financial advisor. Anywhere that you would be able to buy a stock, you would also be able to buy a bond to an extent at least. However, a lot of complexities that go into individual securities like that. So a lot of people rely on, and here's the answer to your question, mutual funds. So what we're talking about here is mutual funds are in and of themselves, we'll call them tools of aggregation. Bear with me. <laughs> so what I mean by that is if you have $1,000, then you can buy one bond. Or you can buy six shares of, uh, I can't give a, the specific name of the company, but you can buy six shares of a very popular uh, computer and phone manufacturer who happens to be a very large company on the stock exchange today. So that in and of itself doesn't give you much, doesn't give you much diversification. You may or may not know what you're doing, but... If you also, or rather, if you have those choices, you could instead give your money to a mutual fund. Go buy a mutual fund. And what's going to happen is that the managers of that mutual fund are going to take your $1,000, and along with the $150 million they already manage, they're going to go buy some stuff. And you're then going to own a proportional share of all the stuff that they buy. And they might buy stocks, or they might buy bonds, or they might buy real estate, or they might buy other mutual funds. This is kind of proving your point of how this is a very overwhelming conversation, there are 33,905 mutual funds in the universe last time I checked. And trying to pick one gets to be a little bit of a yeah. lot. But the reality is all of those funds have slightly different prospectuses and bylaws, basically laws that govern or rules, self-imposed, that govern what they can and cannot do and what they can and cannot invest in. Some of them are very broad. Some of them are very narrow. Some of them say, we're going to only invest in the 500 companies that invest or that comprise the S&P 500. Others are more niche and say, we're only going to invest in small European auto manufacturers, hypothetical example. But they range in their purpose and in their investment strategy and all sorts of different things. But at the end of the day, a mutual fund is a way to just say, ah, rather than buying a stock because I don't know what to do, I'm going to find a good mutual fund and just trust them to sort it out.
That sounds nice. It does sound nice. There are certainly some advantages and disadvantages to that. <laughs> well, we have to also answer the question of what's the difference between a Roth, uh-huh. IR, no, yeah. a Roth 401k mm-hmm. and a 401k, and then what's the difference between a 401k and, and an IRA? IRA? Yes. So hopefully people were listening enough to know that we left off our case study yes, about the did. 401k saying that if we make 100 bucks, we put 10 into the 401k, then that allows us to tell the IRS we only made 90 if the 10 sits in the account and it grows and it grows and it grows and we never pay taxes on that in the 401k um, until we remove the money from the 401k and assuming we do it after age 59 and a half, then that money is just going to be taxed to us as if it's income. So take out a hundred bucks tell the IRS you made a hundred bucks. That's a 401k. A Roth 401k, so named for Senator William Roth, who I don't remember the year, but came up with this idea to tax assets in this specific manner. And everybody thought it was such a good idea that they literally slapped his name as an adjective to describe Mm -hmm. how the money is going to be taxed. And what's going to happen is the flip-flop of the tax deferred format, such that... It's preferred. Nailed it. (laughs) And in our case study, if you are making $100 in a week and you put $10 into your tax preferred Roth 401k then you don't get any tax break for having done so. So you have to turn to the IRS and say, I made $100 this week. So your tax deductions don't drop. There's literally no benefit. It's just $10 out of your paycheck. But once it's in that account, you never pay taxes again, as long as you remove it after age 59 and a half. Even if it grows. Correct. It sits in the account and it grows totally tax-free until you get to retirement and you remove it. And if you remove $100 from the account, then you turn to the IRS and say, $0. So it's the exact opposite of the Just tax Just saying deferred. that sounds like a better option, but I know that's probably more nuanced than that. It, it really is. I'm glad that you say so. Mm-hmm. Simply put, mathematically, if all things are equal, it makes no difference. Neither of those inherently makes you more wealthy than the other ones. The simple question is, well, hey, would you rather pay taxes on the small amount up front or the large amount in the back end. And mathematically, it just doesn't matter if all things are equal. But the reality is never are all things equal. And the right answer to that question, which one of those is better, the Roth or the traditional 401k, boils down to where is the tax bill going to be higher? Are you going to be in a higher tax bracket today than you will in retirement? Or will you be in a higher tax bracket in retirement than you will today? Well, the goal is pay taxes when you're in the lower tax bracket. So then an IRA is? Ooh, an IRA is an individual retirement account. So the same thing, but mm. you can anybody can have one. I can't say anybody can have one, but it is independent of your employer. 401k's employer-sponsored retirement account, and an IRA is individual. So, what would be account. the benefit of picking one over the other? If if I do have mm-hmm. an employer, yeah. So your employer sponsors your 401k, which means that they govern the rules of that 401k. Now, there's some limits to how creative or not creative they can be, thanks to ERISA and some other governing laws that they have to operate within thanks to the unique way that the United States is governed. But the IRA is not going to be governed by that. You're going to have the autonomy to do whatever is appropriate for you. That applies to things like investments, most notably. So 401k is going to have a pre-selected list of funds available to you, which could be nice. It kind of gives you some, some lines within to draw. 
And it's up to you to pick which of those, you know, five to 20 are most appropriate for you. But an IRA oftentimes will give you open architecture, which means you can buy any stock or any bond or any of the 33,905 mutual funds you want. It gets to be a lot. And if you know what you're doing, then that opportunity is fantastic. If you don't know what you're doing, then that's that opportunity is really intimidating. Paralyzing. That's probably a good word yeah. for it. Yes. I actually had a conversation with somebody today. Like, There's even facets of this industry that I don't want to say are paralyzing to me, but I, I felt overwhelmed just listening to like, how, how do you come up with these contract structures? People, I don't. Why and how? How do we pick between? There's what? just I, all that to say. I empathize. Oh, thank there's you. There's lots. Thank you. Okay, so... For those of you who are wondering what a 401k is. Hopefully we've <laughs> I hope that very beaten simple, a dead horse. 45-minute answer. <laughs> but I also think that that makes sense. And I think that people may read that on the internet if they like Google it. And that is still confusing. So that yeah. what made sense. And so thank you for answering that. Sure. And if you still don't understand that, you can probably just email Nathan and he can tell yeah, you. Yeah, we can personally. do this again. Um, okay, so I want to make sure we ask a couple more questions. We won't get mm-hmm. to all of them that you guys asked. So I'm very sorry. But again, you can always call Nathan and just there we go. you know set up a time and ask him yourself. Okay, let's talk about student loans. That seems to be a particularly traumatizing conversation. Yes, it is. So the basis of the questions that were asked were basically like, is it okay to take out student loans if i can't afford school is it okay to take out student loans Mm -hmm. Uh, what do i do with them Mm -hmm. how do i pay them back Mm -hmm. what does it mean to consolidate them i've got to be very careful in answering um, all of those uh, yeah really all of those but particularly the first one like is it okay to take out student loans we said this a second ago not (laughs) 45 minutes ago when we were talking about you know the perception of debt and when we're giving what may be perceived as advice around uh, some financial topics, we have to think about how it could be messed up, right? So I have to be really cautious to say, yeah, take out student loans, they're great. I, I don't think I can say that. I can say that student loans can and do open up opportunities. And if student loans are the only way to open up the opportunity for yourself that you are pursuing, then I think that's the answer, plain and simple. Morally, are student loans wrong? No. Mathematically, are student loans bad? You know, it's mm. taking out a student loan is less good than being given a check just for free, right? Because you got to pay that back and you're going to have to pay it back plus interest. However, one of the things that we're going to talk about, I assume, are some of the student loan forgiveness programs that are available today. And I'm going to make a quick note of social commentary to prove my point, not to to come back to my point here, there's a whole lot of conversation today, politically, socially, around kind of a movement to uh, make education free. Don't want to say that's right or wrong by any means, but what I do want to say is that there's already a lot of infrastructure in place to make education expenses not disproportionately burdensome. That's kind of empty verbiage, I feel like. Mm. However, it's, it's really important because all the different forgiveness programs that exist today, I'm going to oversimplify two of them. One is the public service loan forgiveness program that says you're going to pay back 10% of your discretionary income each year for the next 10 years while you work for a nonprofit organization or any number of them. 
And then at the end of that program, what's left on your balance is going to be forgiven. That's fantastic. Well, here's some quick math here. 10% of your discretionary income. I won't go into the definition of what is discretionary income, but it's less than your total income. But if we forget about that and just say 10% of your income, then 10% of your income for 10 years equals your income, right? So when we're talking about student loans and stepping into a question of, boy, I might take on some student loans and I might take on a ton of student loans and I'd really love it if education is free. Well, the infrastructure that's in place right now for those working for nonprofit organizations, at least, says you're not going to pay back more than one times your income, roughly. Oversimplified calculation. But hopefully that puts in context for people. And that means that somebody who goes to school and spends a lot of money to become a therapist has different student loan expectations for somebody who goes to school and spends a lot of money to become a a neurosurgeon because their incomes are different. Right, but this is if you work for a nonprofit. Correct, but the same concept applies even if you don't work for a nonprofit. There are other forgiveness programs available through the pay-as-you-earn plan and the revised pay-as-you-earn plan that the pay-as-you-earn plan will forgive what's left on your debt after 20 years of those discretionary income, 10% of discretionary income payments. So again, I oversimplify, but 20 years of 10% of your of your income equates to roughly, again, oversimplified, two times your income. And so if you're earning 30000 government says, boy, we don't want to disproportionately burden you with more than $60,000 of debt repayment. If you're earning 400000 then we're going to say, boy, we don't want to disproportionately burden you, in quotations, mm-hmm. with more than $800,000 of payments. Uh, reality is if you're in that situation, then you're probably, probably not going to pay gonna, it off. Right. Yeah. That's right. The point that I'm making is there is a lot of social movement and political movement to make education free and independent of the validity of that idea. There is infrastructure in place right now to ensure that student loan debt that you take on doesn't become an undue burden for you. But this is the thing about that. Uh, my blood is a little bit boiling right mm. now because no... <laughs> Nobody explains that to yeah, anybody. And, so true. and when you read about it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like I had to take out student loans mm-hmm. to go to school because I did not have any money when I graduated college and I yeah. wanted to go to grad school. I have tried to understand this stuff and it is so confusing. Mm-hmm. Why do people let, this is not a question for you. This is a question for the universe. <laughs> Why do people let people do this without being like, hey, you can take out these loans. Let me explain to you how they work and, and how... I could, I know there's probably, well, like, I think it's not the universe that would say, well, it's, it's because not, I'm not responsible for your outcomes. Okay, you're, <laughs> sure, sure. I think it's just like, I think there should be more education, sure. especially in higher education where, where a lot of people are, yeah. oh wow, it's full, mm-hmm. circle. Full it's, circle. a lot of people are taking out loans to be there, yeah. but nobody's talking about it and people mm-hmm. are just being like, oh, my student loans, I have yeah. so many student loans, student loans. Like the student, the word student loan to me comes with this like heavy, icky like burdensome like aftertaste when from that conversation and there's more to it it doesn't have to be that way and it's like well why yeah why is nobody having this conversation yeah it really is shocking to me on a lot of different levels that it's not happening and we're not here to talk about this but i'm going to quickly make a unashamed plug here in that of course uh, this is a thing that is sort of a passion piece for me just the this sense of lack of financial preparedness or at least lack of financial education and preparedness coming out of at least 
the healthcare education systems. To your point, mm-hmm. like if we're going to strap all these students with tons of debt, then why aren't we educating them on this? And there's some very real reasons as to why they're not and why they can't. And they've got curricula bodies and, and curricula structures that they have to meet and standards and I mean, all those things that just get in the way, right? But this is a thing that my sister and I actually started a separate side project business to hopefully address and raise the culture of financial preparedness in at least healthcare education settings to actually open the door to have those conversations. And our vision right now is mostly uh, mostly revolving around just print material as well as asynchronous web-based virtual courses that we're hoping to be available in as many you know healthcare education colleges as we can come up with uh, over the course of time. But at the end of the day, I think I think you're right. It is kind of a shame that people are going to school without any real preparation and any real context or education around it. So I also, separate comment, also teaching at um, University of Tennessee in the Health Sciences Center. And yesterday ended, it was the last class of this semester for me. And I always have an open discussion around like, hey, this is an elective course. Why'd you take it? I wrote down some notes on what you said, class number one. And so I want to test this. Did we actually accomplish some of these things? And what did we learn? What did we not learn, et cetera? And I'm still genuinely surprised that so many people, even halfway through their training, are surprised to learn about all the different options for student loan repayments. And one of them who was, may have been the, the smartest kid in the class, sat down and was like, you know, I just thought there was 10 years, 20 years, or 30 years to pay my loans off. And I was just going to have to buckle down and get it done. And that was it. But the reality is, is there's a lot to consider. And uh, I'm really excited to now know it. Yeah, that is that is a lasting takeaway for me anytime I'm around people with student loans. It's like, boy, I wish we could just tell you sooner, mm-hmm. teach you sooner. Well, because one, I think that if the education could help make it not so scary. So maybe people who've always wanted to go back to school for yeah. something yeah. are like, oh, I actually can do this. It won't ruin my life. That's right. And then the people who have done that aren't like, oh, I can't believe I did this. And now I'm going to be like suffering forever. And it's just this like dark rain cloud that's going to follow me everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it neither of those has to be true. And we don't have to ignore it uh-huh. either. Because I think the dark rain cloud, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, it's not raining yet. So we're just going to let it be back there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we're also going yeah. to just like never turn around. Right. So we just don't right, right, see right. it. And that's if right. I don't see it, then it's uh-huh. not real. That was, I think, in the first two sentences of a book that I wrote with my sister last year to this material uh, in our foreword was alluding to that exact concept. Well, you could bury your head in the sand about this stuff, but that might work out or probably won't. Don't be afraid of student loans, I think is the takeaway. And uh, know that help is available, though it will not be fed to you. Well, who do you go to? Yeah, that's a really, really, really great, great question. Hopefully the school that you're going to has some uh, resources available. I mean, maybe they have, you know, a financial planning course in the curricula. Obviously, I teach at University of Tennessee in the College of Pharmacy, and they do. Obviously, not everywhere does, right? So, yeah, hopefully it's integrated in there. There are professionals. I mean, this is something that I know a ton about. This is kind of an unfortunate specialization in my career. And there is actually, <laughs> what is that face for? Well, okay, I think this is a fair point. I think it's confusing 
for people because one of the questions I'm gonna I'm gonna circle yep. what you're saying into yep. the last question that we'll answer because one of somebody said our financial advisors slash planners mm-hmm, sure. worth it what yeah. do they even do mm-hmm. and I think that leads into the question of like well I have loans yep so I have negative money that's right so I don't want to pay somebody to ask questions about my negative money what are mm-hmm. they gonna do sure. and I, so I think that concept is confusing for people who are like maybe they don't have loans sure. maybe they just like maybe they're struggling with money or they whatever and so it's like well what do they even do is it worth it for me to pay somebody to help me with money i don't feel like i have yeah i'm going to oversimplify what should be the job of all financial planners no matter who they're talking to no matter how old the client is or how wealthy the client is or rich the client is or poor the client the job of a financial planner should be to be committed to making sure that the client does everything they can to make sure they're wealthy when they grow up hopefully it's that simple Historically, what that has meant is that you know we've had a really good canvas uh, to make an impact on people's investments, and so that's really the core deliverable for financial planners and advisors is to advise on invested dollars or dollars that could be invested, whether they're already invested or not. A lot of people that already have dollars invested. I mean, listen, if you've got a million dollars to invest, then you think about the the cost of a bad decision with the million dollars is potentially huge. And so it's very easy to think, aha, yes, a financial planner will help me avoid some very costly mistakes. If you're talking about investing $1,000, the cost of your mistake is really not that much. Unless you consider the fact that most people that we're talking about who have $1,000 to invest are very early in their career. And I'm a very firm believer that people's long-term wealth is less defined by their income, their assets, and their liabilities, and more defined by their habits. Especially if I'm talking to somebody who's, I don't know, let's just say under age 40. Whatever your habits are can be messed up and have a huge negative impact on you or a hugely positive impact on you. I think some of the wealthiest clients that I work with relative to their age have always made fine money, but have never been much above the average income of people that I work with, but they've just, they've just got good habits. They've done it right from the onset and they've had their head screwed on straight and it's just been easy for them. They have done nothing magic. They've done nothing fancy. They've just executed and they've executed the right way. And we did it from an early age. And now they're 30. But it's never too late. It's never too late. It's never too late. Okay. The earlier you can do it, the better. I mean, this is one client that I started working with when they were 24. And yeah, now they're, well, they're just trugging along doing great. Yeah, I would say that the longer you wait, the less opportunity you've got. And you never have more time in front of you than you do today. So capitalize on it. Are financial planners worth it? And what do they actually do? Hopefully we're getting the concept. At the end of the day, that plays out in a number of different ways, though. I mean, investments is just the natural playground for a financial planner. But it is the industry is beginning to acknowledge much more so nowadays that wealth is much more comprehensive than investments. And I, I don't necessarily want to say it's a new generation idea, but it's certainly not a This is not a comment on age or actual generation, but it's not an old generation idea. It's just conceptually, this is on the newer end of the spectrum. Uh, And so there are a number of, it's a a very significant portion of the industry is committed to working with people on a holistic approach like that and really affect their habits 
and uh, spend more time there than, let's say, just focusing on, well, do you buy this stock or that stock? And so, like I say, I've got an unfortunate specialization in student loans. That's because 12 years ago, when I started in this career, the people who were interested in listening to me needed to answer the question, what did they need to do with their student loans? And they looked to me to be a resource for that, and I figured out how to be a resource for that. And now I've just kind of grown in that competency and now have, I mean, I spend a whole lot of time talking to people about how to handle their student loans as a part of pursuing long-term wealth success. There's a lot more questions. And I think that means that if you still want answers, hopefully this conversation has made it less scary or shameful and you can find somebody Mm -hmm. to help answer those questions Can you work with anybody no matter where they live? I'm not governed the way that you are, no. So theoretically, yes. There is some challenge working with expats, uh, people living outside of the country. But within the United States, I have clients in Alaska and in Florida. Context. Okay, so majority of people that are listening to this, right? Yeah, it's pretty much the extremes, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Um, so if you actually do want to contact Nathan, mm-hmm. you can. We'll put your website in the show notes. You just click a nice little link, and it takes you right there. And if they want to follow you on social media, even though you're new at being present, maybe mm-hmm. you're not present on social media. That's where true. can they follow you? Uh, they can follow me at Karen Financial. On Karen's, Instagram. Oh, that's on Twitter. Twitter. You don't have an Instagram. I have a personal Instagram. Okay. So do, can, do you want them sure, to follow you? Sure. Check yeah. me out. At w, <laughs> w Nathan Green with the extra E check, at the end. Check them out. <laughs> we'll put all of that in the show notes so you can just click all of that stuff. Yeah. And this is going to be a little motivator for you maybe to get that Twitter up and going. Yeah. If you get some followers, maybe you'll... Yeah. Yeah. Got to start somewhere, you sure. know? Okay. Well, thank you for this conversation and thank you guys for listening if you guys have more questions don't ask them to me you can ask them to nathan but if you do have questions in general remember you can always email katherine at uniedtherapypodcast.com and those might show up on a couch talks episode so you can do that and then you can always follow me at at cat.defada and at uniedtherapypodcast and uh that'll do it bye guys America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. 
Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.